Most highly noted for his stunning work in musical theater, Gavin Creel is an actor, singer, and songwriter. On Broadway, he's performed in shows including Thoroughly Modern Millie, Hair, The Book of Mormon, Waitress, and Hello, Dolly, his performance in which won him his first Tony Award. Creel is also an LGBTQ activist, having done much to raise awareness and fight for marriage equality. process. I know when you received your Tony Award, you so graciously thanked your teachers at University of Michigan. Could you just talk about your beginnings as an artist and what drew you to theater and musical theater? You know, I'll go backwards a little bit. When I was little, I think like a lot of young people who dream of being actors and artists, I watched those award shows. So I, I, I will absolutely out myself that I for sure dreamt of, the, of winning an award when I was, when I was younger. And I, I have to say, one thing I knew I wanted to do was thank my teachers. I thought I would like list all the influential teachers in my life. And then a, when I got nominated for the third time, I was nominated for Thoroughly Modern Millie the first time, and then Hair the second time, and then Hello Dolly the third time. I thought this third time I, I sort of had a chance of possibly getting my name called. And I thought about that thing again. Of, well, I want to thank all my teachers. And I... I just know that so many of them have been so influential in different points of my life. I would even say, like, at certain points of my life, Shirley Jenkins was the most important teacher I had. She was my first piano teacher. And then Virginia Elderbrock, who was then my piano teacher, was most important. And then Nancy Glick in fifth and sixth grade. And then on to band instructors and choir instructors through high school and then on through Michigan. It was always somebody else was the most important. My voice teacher, Kevin Manley, my first voice teacher, and then on and on and on through Melody Racine and Lady Go, all these people. And I thought, I'll be up there for an hour and they'll move me off the stage because I'll be thanking so many people. And then I just thought to myself, education at large is something that has been the star of my life up to this point. You know, my arts education has been my greatest teacher. And, and my being surrounded by people who were interested in the arts and wanted to make themselves better actors, better artists, better singers. So my, my colleagues were my teachers. And the, the halls that I would be in, whether it's the Power Center, the Performing Arts, or the Central Auditorium in my growing up doing high school musicals, it was, it was sort of an inspiration and a teacher to me. And, and my education became less about one person or a short list of people or a long list. Do you know what I mean? Like working backwards, I was thinking, oh, who will I thank? And then I just realized it was arts education in general. And then the day before the Tonys, when I was thinking, oh, gosh, what if they call my name and what will I say? I remembered my, my scholarship donors, Art and Marty Heron, who were kind of responsible for me being able to go to school in the first place and their generosity of donating to schools so that I could afford to study. Ultimately, I was really proud of what I said. I, I knew that that's what I wanted to say. And I knew I had to practice what I was going to say because I, I was afraid I would curse because if I was excited, I would say a bad word on TV and that would be bad. <laughs> my, my mother would be very upset with me. Well, I think it's um, I think it's a beautiful message, and it's also lovely that you speak about education, as is the arts, as a collaborative, right? It's this whole ecosystem, you know, and it's not just the star; it's the everyone. Yes. Exactly, everyone on stage and everyone behind the scenes, and I call them even the invisible arts. And then you speak about like notable producers. I'd love for you to speak about those, you know, who see something and help you yes. hone it. A great, great comment. What's great about Scott Rudin and Tom Schumacher of Head of Disney and Mark Platt, David Stone, and all these massive, um, Jim, Jeffrey Teller and Kevin McCollum and Junkyard Dogs and these great producers of Broadway that are uh, too many to name. They're driving the car that we all get to sort of sit in, or at least they're, they're providing the car. But it doesn't run without every single person. I love the invisible artists who are very much visible to me, but maybe you and the audience don't see. It's something that I really pride, my favorite part of the industry and doing what I do is the backstage stuff. On stage is great. I love getting applause. Don't get me wrong. I love the attention. Who doesn't? You finish a number and 1,500 people stand up and clap for you. I wish every human being got the opportunity when they finished a spreadsheet at work, they handed it in and everybody <laughs> stood up and applauded. Because nobody would, 
going to work. You would love your work. And that's one of the great reasons. Of course, the outside of it is you get attention to people. But the greatest thing for me is the collaboration and the backstage high fives that I get from a crew person right before I run on stage or the traditions that I have with the stage managers before we go out or checking in with fellow co-stars who are feeling under or tired or getting married that weekend. It's, it's the life that surrounds and, and goes through the theater that excites me. Because if it was just what was going on on stage, we do the same thing every day. It would become intensely boring. And at times it can be you know, like, oh gosh, I have to do it again. But the thing that makes it exciting for me is the life that is a part of the theater. And that has everything to do with the relationships that you make with the people that brought you there, your teachers, your, your uh, classmates. It has everything to do with, like you said, the invisible artists, the crew, IOTSI, local 802, the musicians' union, the ushers, the front of house staff, the merchandise people, that you walk, you may not see them often, but you walk through the theater and you're like, oh, hey, how you doing? And I know that they see us on stage every night. And then when we, it's the Broadway Cares, Everybody Fights AIDS volunteers, that we grab the buckets and we go out and we collect to raise money for times like these. Where if it weren't for the community coming together, that's what I like the most about uh, what I do. The acting part of it is not first on the list for me. The awards are certainly not first because you, you know, the chances of you winning it or getting nominated or winning an award are very low. None of that stuff. The money is nice because I'm able to afford a life that I never thought I would be able to. But again, if you want money, don't go into theater. My gosh. <laughs> It's really true as I reflected on it and I've had a chance to speak with a lot of theater people and people who, you know, also have a, a film life and TV life, but why they keep on coming back, that they love it. I mean, I know sometimes there's other communities, but I think there's a great community that of different jobs don't have that. Every single person, whether it's the costume designers or, you know, production design and all, and everyone who like contributed to that, I feel like I was, a, I helped make that. And I really feel, if we could use this, use this time where we're in isolation, where we miss the theater so much, where we miss community so much, to understand that that's what we value, and let's see what we value, and when we can, even introduce those elements of the community that theater has into, as you say, other disciplines that might be more commercially oriented, that might have nothing to do with the arts, but people can experience a love of having done something collectively, and um, a few people could yeah. really appreciate it. You know... Like what you just said, do you know Whole Foods? Yeah. Have you ever heard of Whole Foods? Okay, so I don't I don't know enough about this to talk with authority, but I, I'm pretty sure that when you are a bagger at mm -hmm. Whole Foods, you're the person putting the stuff in the bag, not even the manager or the person who runs the store, the general manager, every person that comes into a Whole Foods has a stock option mm -hmm. so that you're invested in the company that you're working for. Like you're given, yeah. if the company does well, I don't know if that's changed since Amazon took it over, but I remember being told that, that like it, it gives it gives you a personal, like you said, investment in the, the second assistant costume sewer who goes in and fixes the hats alone. Hat tiny tiny print, right, is in the in yeah. the playbill. And you, you look in there, there's a pride of contribution that I know, I know, I see at the opening night party where I come up as the second yeah. sewer comes up to me and says you're fantastic, Michelle, my name's Mia, and I, I yeah. sewed the thing on your hat, and I'm like hugging you and going, oh my gosh, thank you so much, because even though I'm out front, or even though I'm bowing, or whatever, every single person is invaluable to what the audience sees at the very end, and it's not lost on me, and it's something that, that I think it's, it's what makes creativity something to celebrate, because even though maybe if you were the one who sewed the hat, it may be a job for you to be able to pay for something, but it's all, especially in New York City, it's all stepping stones or, or moments, rungs on the ladder, whatever you want to say, to lead you to a dream. Because everybody that comes to New York, they don't come to New York to like, oh, I think that sounds like a nice place to settle down and raise a family. People who come to New York, especially in our industry, are coming to contribute, to be creative, to say something, to leave something in the canon of musical theater or theater or the arts. It's never lost on me that everyone contributing, even the people who are just doing their day work, laundry, so that I can have 
you know, like a, an iron shirt for the show that night. It's ultimately all in a creative pursuit. It's 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 artistic, and 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 it's something I pride myself on. And when people ask me, young people ask me, what advice would you give young people who want to pursue the theater? An advice I'm going to give from now on is learn the names of every single crew person and use them often yeah. and practice them. It's just an effort that I think is really important because it not only speaks to manners and kindness, but it also speaks to your valuing everyone's role in the building. Because it's really easy to cast the actors as self-important and self-obsessed narcissists who are just never talk to anybody and they just come on stage and they get the applause and they leave and they sign the autographs and they go. You know, some people will always think that, let them. But I think yeah. it's just making an effort to learn people's names and engage them. I think it makes the world a difference. That's my advice. And, and it also validates everybody is important in that building. Everyone is contributing. It's not just about Scott Rudin and Bette Midler, you know, yeah. the head producer and the head. Because there's enough of that attitude already in the theater, people feeling not important, people feeling not seen and not valued. I would love to speak with you, you know, how you inhabit a role, and then you inhabit it for a long time. So how you build a character, the different, you know, as you add humor and the music and how that all coalesces, you know. It's a long process that, again, is a collaboration between the director, music director, my co-stars, the composer. Those are probably the biggest because they're giving, the choreographer and the director and the music director are sort of giving you the sound, the shape, and the attention, like working on how they need you to fit into the puzzle mm-hmm. and, and what they need you to bring and achieve within this, the script or in, in, in the show. But I always start with the script, obviously, because without the playwright, we have no words to speak and no the composer, no songs to sing. And I try to make all of my decisions based on text, not just inference, but based on what the text says. The number one thing I do for every play I do is I say, they say. You take a piece of paper and you, you write, I say, and then I read the script. And any time I say anything about my character, my character, just me, says anything about myself, you know, um, I write down everything I say and then I read them, just what I say about myself. And then I go back and I start the script over again and I say, they say. And then I look through anything anyone else says about me. I write all that down. And then I've got columns of, of statements or thoughts or lyrics that are basically, that is my character. That's where I always begin. And then from there, I start to infer, I believe in God. Why do I believe in God? I start to ask the why. Why is it that I I have this belief? And then based on other things I see on that page, or maybe the sound of the music starts to beat in, there's a joy, there's a bounce, there's an effervescence that's part of that music. I had a great teacher in college, the head of our program, Brent Wagner, said, with lyrics, I can tell you to open the door, mm-hmm. but with music, I can tell you how. L- lyrics are information, and, and music is emotion, and they are meant to be written together. Anyway, that's usually where I begin, is that I say, they say, and then from there, I pay attention to the tiny moments of the play, the scenes between people. How do I handle myself? I start to think about status. Whether I'm in a scene, I'm, I'm submitting to someone or aggressing towards them or we're bouncing, we're trying to figure each other out. How do I handle myself in new situations? How do I behave with people I've lived with my whole life, my parents? I just start to examine relationship. And then from there, I start to imagine, you know, one of the first questions I asked the, the director of hair, Diane Paulus, was, how long will my wig be? And that was important to me because I, I know how long it takes to grow your hair out. And, and in the time, in the 50s, early 60s when I would have been growing up, you would have had that short, super cropped haircut. You would have been American and male first. And and when you see me in the play, my hair is down to here. That's six years of growth. So I back up from there and I think, when did I start disobeying my parents and not cutting my hair the way everyone else was? Just these tiny things that they actually make acting really fun to zoom in and sort of like, you know how we do with our, our smartphones, like yeah. going in further, just yeah. trying to zoom in on why, but why, but why, and asking myself those questions. And then it becomes fun. It also is more fun when you have a director who wants to zoom in with you and is interested in that. But sometimes they don't. Some, some directors like, I don't want to know. I don't want you to tell me. It's a mystery. Keep it to yourself. I just need you to end up on number two at this point and number 14 at this point. Just do the blocking and here it is. And I love those directors too sometimes because, okay, then let me go. I'm going to figure this out on my own and 
but I am going to make it honest. And then ultimately my, my end goal is always to come to a performance that honors the energy of the piece, honors the word and the writer, honors the music the, and the, the style appropriately, yeah. but that is honest. That no matter how big or over the top, it has to be real. It has to be from the heart, every single character I play. Whether I'm a chimney sweep um, in London, or I'm a hippie, or I'm a, a, a womanizing perfume salesman, they have to have, for me, they have to have something to which I, the character, glom onto 100%, and I, the actor, Gavin, can glom onto as well like that. I'm able to grab onto it and go, this is what is true for me to identify with the character, because this is what is true for the character. So it's trying to find all those pieces from the beginning of what I say about myself, they say about all the way through to making sure that the performance that I give is honest, believable, and the right style. And that you can keep on going into that well, like scuba diving and finding some other treasure. I think that's so smart. I'm going to tell you something about Bette Midler. Uh-huh. On the last week, the very last week of the show, we were closing the show. Yeah. She comes up to my dressing room to work on a moment. And I was like, let it go. And then I went, no, don't let it go. The show's not over. She's still working. Yeah. She had this moment where she was like, I think we can get a laugh here. And I think this is what the beat's about. This is why it needs to be honest. We're here. And you keep still. And, 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 and the funny thing is, we tried it, and it tanked. It was terrible. And it, at one point in the show, she leaned over to me. And she goes, oh, that was a terrible idea. Let's go back to the other way. And it was hilarious. But she was always mining for better clearer storytelling, trying things, even to the last week of our show. And I thought, if Bette Midler can do it, being in this business for 50-some years, so can I. That's that beautiful obsession of artistry. And to risk, you know, it failing. That means she's alive in every moment. Every moment. And I try try to be the same way. And there are tricks you can do, quick tricks to engage quickly. My, My quickest trick, I always tell students, is just stare at the person's mouth. Watch the words come out of their mouth because they are speaking to you. They are talking to you or they're talking to someone else. But if you can see their mouth moving and listen to the words that they're saying as if you've never seen them again, heard them. It's easy to say, listen to what they're saying. And I said, yeah, but listen with your eyes. Stare at their mouth and watch what they're saying. For me, it's a really great way to like lock in. What what do they mean? What is that? Oh, wow. I never heard it that way before. And try to make it different every time. Try to keep it fresh. Not only does it make it interesting and exciting for you to do, but it makes it like a dangerous little balloon that we're tapping up and you're passing the ball to the other actor. If you do the same thing every time, you read the line the same way, I understand why some people do that because it makes them feel safe and, and, and they're you know maybe nervous or anxious or they want to try to recreate a moment. I say recreating something is poison. Rediscovering is Nana from heaven. Coming in and being like, oh, what was that thing that happened? Oh, let's see if we can rediscover what that was. Trying to do it again, I'm not interested. I like to even go back a little bit. I say, they say. I love that. And it, actually, I think it's important for life as well, not just to be thinking about what you say, thinking always, try to think from the other point of view. How are they receiving it? It's, it's, what, yeah. it's what you and I are doing right now. Yeah. Like, I love that you like the video because... I can read your body language, and I can look at you, and then I can see, oh, she's really engaged, she's got her hands, she's talking, and she's, oh, but I want to go back, and I'm reading off your it's energy. It's the thing yeah. we're missing so much in life right now. It's, it's what makes life so much harder at the moment, because you can't sit in the theater and watch To Kill a Mockingbird and be blown away by Celia and, and Will and Gideon's performances ushering us through that show, or going to see... You know, Mandy Gonzalez in Hamilton and watch how electric she is on stage and how she crackles with energy. That interaction between us is like soul-to-soul connection. And we're starving for it. And I, we're going to be starving for it for a while. This is not going away quickly. Jerry, Jerry Zach, the director, always said, though, you don't know what the character is going to say next. So it has to be discovery. And even though the actor knows the series of lines, you don't. The character doesn't. So the character doesn't know they're about to say a monologue. The character doesn't know they're about to scream or have something. It has to happen in the moment. It has to be believable. And it absolutely has to feed off of the energy of the other person, not what you know the other person is about to say. There's a really great tell you can hear in, 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 in acting where somebody, there's, like if you were ever to see a line in a script 
and there's an interruption. Yeah. And the person is meant that double dash is meant that the next person. But I'm not, I didn't say that. Like they're interrupting. So so as the person who's going to say, I didn't say that. If that person's not listening, they know yeah. they're supposed to interrupt, and they go, but I'm not. And they go, but I, I didn't say that. And then the other way is that the A races towards the interruption. They know they're going to be interrupted. They'll be like, you think that I'm doing something wrong, but I'm not. They'll race towards the end of the line, which tells me they know the actor is going to interrupt them. They should just say, but I'm not saying that. Do you know what I mean? It's when I teach. I tell students what Jerry Zachs taught me or what Kate Baldwin taught me or what Mia taught me in this interview. You know, everything is a borrowed idea. And then I just try to hone it for myself and try to say, oh, I'm I'm thinking about it in this way, or what if we approach it in this way? Because each individual is a completely different person, and you want to make sure that you're not just, you know, I can teach the I say, they say to a classroom of people, but interpreting a script is subjective, isn't it? The Cornelius that I play wouldn't be the Cornelius that, I don't know, Aaron Savate would play. Aaron would play a very different Cornelius, because Aaron's faculty, Aaron's voice, Aaron's ideas, Aaron's interpretation of the same lines that I read, He's going to see something different that I would go, oh my gosh, I never saw that. How cool. And he will say the same thing back to me. It would be a lie if I went to the script and I was like, oh, how would Aaron Spade play this? Well, that's not, that's not honest. That's not real. It's, it's how would I play it? What would I do? What would I say? And now, what does Jerry Zach need from me to do? And then I filter my interpretation of Cornelius through Jerry's instruction and Jerry's guidance of what Jerry says. I needed to go for broke. Everything is level 10 out of 10. Everything is primary color, red, yellow, blue. There's no, like, shade in this time. It says everybody is going for broke. Like, their life depended on it, is what Jerry kept saying to us. So we would come out on stage, and he'd be like, no, it's false. And I feel like Taylor Trench and I, when we were starting, we said we felt like robots, like we were so over the top. And then you realize the thing that makes this musical comedy work is that everybody is operating on this all love, joy, go for broke, adventurous, everything. I want to see in life and out there, there's a world outside of Yonkers. If you don't meet that energy, it looks self-conscious, it looks contemporary. It's not what the piece calls for. Now, you can't play Cornelius with that energy. Hair, hair lives down here in the more naturalistic and spacey and weird. And that's what's fun as an actor is to decide how much or how little you're going to fold that style in, but it has to be believable. Yeah, so then you transition to the musical pieces. Then they just do come out because you, you're at that level already. I can understand how that is a program. Totally. totally. You're exactly right. If you're speaking and then you're singing and the audience is like, yeah, it's a perfect transition. But if it was the other way, it would be weird. <laughs> yeah, it would be terrible. It's, it's what makes musical theater bad sometimes. People are just sort of standing there and all of a sudden they're like, oh, so I don't know. Listen, Barnaby, out there! And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> And I want to speak about something else, and it's not something, I think that, you know, people who aren't in the musical theater, who aren't in dance or whatever, they may study some kind of physical discipline or exercise or sport, but I feel that nonverbal communication, we just are expected to know it, but not in the way that actors and that um, music performers know it. You know, you're talking about subtext, you're talking about tone, you're talking about the emotion that comes through even though the lyrics say something else, the line says something right. else. Right, right. And I, I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are on that exactly, but I think that in some ways in this digital, and I think you've spoken publicly about not being so much on social media, yeah. it's kind of, we're learning a lot, we're like one of the most informed generation, but in other ways our senses are closing. Like as we get more information, our bandwidth for reading the nonverbals and tones. I, that's so smart, yeah. I, I, it's total science, and you can study that for years. I agree. Maybe it's what makes the theater more exciting now, because we're getting to watch bodies in motion. We're getting to watch the relationships of people play out in front of us without the luxury or control of a camera or an editor. Yeah. You know, if you really study film and TV, sometimes I'll watch it and I'll go, wow, I've been watching for the last 40 seconds a reaction shot of somebody, not the person talking. It's when it's done so well, you don't even think, you're just, oh, that's storytelling. But that, that takes study and an observation and a great director and a great editor. That when you're on stage, the director is in the audience. 
There's no editor. There's no camera. There's the lighting designer. There's the sound designer. But they, they're doing what the director told them. So really, when it's the, the actor's art form, when you get out there in the theater, it's like, well, Kurt, I can take us and, you know, I would get fired if I went in the wrong direction. But we're going straight through. And I love that. Yeah, you have that, that tight wire of time and rhythm and all of this stuff, and you have to make sure all the balls are up in the air and everyone catches yeah. them. I can't imagine what that's like. Powerful. It's very powerful. It's also, it can be scary at times, uh-huh. you know, especially when you're human and you're not feeling well. Your voice is tired. Your voice is out. You're, you started the show and you're like, crap, how am I going to get through this? Um, when someone on stage or you are going through something horrible in your life or, or something really exciting and you can't focus, that's when life, life is always first, and, and what we do is even a close, close, close second, but life has to be first. It, but it's also what makes theater exciting, and and I, I felt this really, really beautifully in Waitress, this last stretch in London, because I had such amazing chemistry with Sarah, it's such a trust and a, a beautiful friendship with her on stage, and we had moments where we'd break character, or the audience would do something, we'd laugh, and, and, and we're like, oh, we should be doing this, but I felt so comfortable and safe to get us back in and focus in, and I trusted her so much that it was so relaxed and such a beautiful dance that that's when you sort of, you realize, oh no, we're not here in an empty theater. We're here with the greatest character, the audience. They're the ones who are actually telling us how fast or how slow we need to drive, or or what needs to be clear, or what's not clear enough. And Of course, you still trying to play the character and, and appease the director and the focus of the whole piece, but that's what's exciting because each audience is totally different and each energy that they bring makes the show different each night. So to just settle in and do the same thing is almost irresponsible of me okay. to just give Thursday night's audience Wednesday night's show. Yeah. Thursday night's audience comes in and the minute the lights go out, they're like, what? And we're like, well, hello. Wednesday night, the lights went out silent. You're like, what am I going to be like? Oh, it's, it's hard when the audience is quiet or whatever, but nine times out of ten, quiet audiences, they're quiet. We're like, oh, I'm dying out there. They're on their feet before the lights go out, beginning of the curtain call. The ensemble comes out, and they're on their feet. Nine times out of ten, Mia, that happens. We think, oh, the audience is terrible, and they're screaming like crazy at the end. Yeah, so I, I wonder how that goes into it and how you adjust. I find that amazing. Not only you're remembering your lines, you're remembering you know, all these other elements, and then part of your brain is also calculating and reading the audience. So I don't know how. Yeah. <laughs> like a, a CAT scan would be so fascinating. I know, I know. <laughs> little monitors on our heads. It, it, it truly repetition and uh-huh. experience. When yeah. I first started, I didn't really know how to write an audience. I do now, mm-hmm. I, I, and, I, and I, I continue to get better at it. It's also trusting your self-worth as an actor. It's something that I'm just coming into my own, really. Trusting that I can land this moment. There are certain moments I'm stronger at landing, and comedy was something that I kind of came into in my 30s, really, yeah. in a way that I was like, oh, I, I can be funny. I, and what does it take mm-hmm. to get a reaction from an audience? And just the idea of having the chance to do it again and again and try. I mean, I did Book of Mormon you know, almost 1,400 times. Mm-hmm. And the joy of the discipline of getting to repeat it, but the joy of getting to do it again and again and having the luxury of going, oh, I tried like three things and they were, all were bad, but I get to do it tomorrow and I will try to finesse them and all the while trying to keep it fresh. It's a challenge. And speaking of that, you spent quite a few years now in London, and what's it like bringing one of the same production to London, and then it's on national tour, and all, you know, so that yeah. you're making adjustments there to different audiences. I mean, I don't know how much you do that. People always ask what's the difference between, and I see the audiences at first, but I have to say, so, I mean, I was I was on stage with a rock star, so Sarah Bareilles has a yeah. appeal internationally. But our reaction in, in London was mental. It was really, really consistent and great. In a way that you would think, oh, that's American audiences are more verbal and loud, and they, they tend to be, maybe, generally, but I'm going to be honest, there's less difference as far as reaction goes. More of the differences are backstage differences. I think it's, it's, it's kind of just knowing the experience that I've had, knowing that each show, no matter where I am, whether I'm in Des Moines or I'm in London or I'm in off-Broadway or on-Broadway or anything, each audience is there to be captivated, taken away, escaped, entertained, challenged. 
whatever the piece calls for. And I owe it to them the same way that I do when I teach. I owe it to that person standing in front of me not to just do the same stuff. I'm going to get the same ideas. I'm going to try to, ooh, this might, this concept might work for you. But if I get up and I say, this whole class is going to be about subtext, even in subtext and explaining what subtext is and, and examining where subtext shows up, even in that dissection of it, that we're all going to have these collective agreed terms and ideas, even in that, Mia is going to have a different take on subtext than Gavin is. And Gavin's going to have a different take than Jerry is. And Jerry's going to have a different take than Scott is. On and on and on. And if I just say, no, you have to do it the way Mia did it, it's going to shut me down. I'm not going to get it. Gavin needs a little more hand-holding. Mia's more courageous. Jerry doesn't like to think too much and just wants to do it, whereas Scott wants to really examine everything and works more from his head. And you just, it's an individual thing. So just like teaching in that way, the audience maybe a little drunker because it's Friday and it's the end of the week and they're tired and they're worn out. So they're a little quieter and kind of lethargic because they drank. Saturday, they've been out all day. Sunny, they're, they're ready to come and see Hamilton and boom, they're crackling. Sunday afternoon, why are they crackling on Sunday? Oh, they got up and had mimosas. It's a beautiful, <laughs> another beautiful brunch. Like life bleeds in and they come in. Oh, we're going to the theater. I heard Hamilton is so great. Wow. Oh, but last Sunday was amazing. And this Sunday, well, what's different? Well, it's hotter today or it's raining or, or nothing's different. The weather is exactly the same. It's 1,500 different people. The front row sometimes dictates the entire energy of an audience. If the front row is lit up, it tends to affect the people behind them. And, yeah, yeah, it's exciting. Sometimes audiences are big groups and they're all a certain age and Clapping takes a lot of energy. And if you're 80 years old and 85 years old, you go, you're like, oof, I'm tired. Doesn't mean they're not enjoying it. Why didn't they stand up? They're old. You know, it's there's so many things that make up an audience. Or just like there's so many things that make up a class, just like there's so many things that make up an individual. To not honor that we are all creative, beautiful, interesting, deep, rich individuals is... We're not zeros and ones on a spreadsheet. We're not scientifically explained. We are not mathematically judged. We are imperfect blobs of emotion and bone and spirit and life. And when we come together, there's nothing greater than the chemistry and the alchemy of musical theater because you're dealing with emotion, information, physicality, body, language, movement, unison, agreements, an ensemble of people rising up over something, when it's done well, I don't think there's any better form of art. I truly still believe that. After all this, about 20-some years of the business and doing shows that some are more successful than others, I really do believe when I see a musical that is done so beautifully and simply and powerfully and romantically and emotionally and honestly, I just, I'm sent to the moon and back. Well, I think that's so beautifully said, and I think that it's it's true because it has the the ebb uh, realism, but then it has this access to emotion, allowing us to have our emotions soar in ways that realism can't reach, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. You're smart. You know your stuff. <laughs> and I want to speak a little about your teaching. I don't know where you teach. Do you teach in New York or? I, I don't have a studio yet. I'm something oh. I'm actually doing this time. I'm, people have asked me when you're going to start a studio, and I'm like, maybe this is the time to examine what that would look like and be able to have that going when we get back to work. I just, I love helping people achieve their dream. I love trying to be a cog, you know, in the machine that helps them get to where they want to go. I love it more than performing because it's it's outside of myself. It's, 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 an, it's an effort of service and it just makes me feel good. So weirdly, it's like selfish because I love helping other people because it makes me feel good. But, no, but, um, yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. I, I, be, I, I believe in what we do. I believe in its power. And if somebody's hungry and wants to figure out how to be better and they're willing to entertain ideas that I have, I do master classes around the country and around the world. I've done stuff in London and I've done stuff in Canada and all over the country and in America. I've gone back to Michigan and taught a course that I invented with a couple friends that we did a course together. I did, um, I've done one-offs. Mostly, mostly one-offs and then short stints at different places, like a week here. I teach at the Performing Arts Project every summer for as much time as I can. Sometimes it's a couple days, sometimes it's a week. And it's an amazing teaching program that really concentrates on process and and developing a well-rounded, curious artist rather than just somebody who wants to be on Broadway and sing high E-flats, you know. I'm not as interested in that kind of education. I want to make artists who 
who are interested in, in unlocking their own uniqueness and, and believing in that. And I think that's really where the greatness lies. I was speaking with the, the director choreographer Trish uh, C the other day, and uh, we we're talking about Maria Callas for some reason. But it's not it's not just about hitting the note because like she could hit the note like nobody else. But it's also the trembling. It's also as you say, it's like well you're not even thinking about the note. It, it could be almost just not reaching it because you believe that real emotion. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think if once you teach people that, the the rest that comes, you know, unless they're tone deaf. I mean, you know, <laughs> like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a few things you have to have: rhythm, tone, and yeah. function. The uniqueness. I think that, that and that's something. It, it takes so much courage to do that. To not do it as somebody else did, but like as you say, own the role, own own the character. Yeah, I'm always looking for something that is deeper and more connected, and I think teaching is that for me in a way, yeah. and in a way. Activism was a way of teaching. I can sort of sum them both up in a song called Noise. It's a single with my buddy Robbie Rock to raise money for an organization that is now defunct because we have marriage equality in our country. Yeah. We are a one-issue organization to mobilize the theater community to fight for marriage equality. It's called Broadway Impact. Yeah. And I'm so proud to have been a part of that and to have helped the theater community do that work. I love writing music simply because the profession I'm in, I have so little control in what I get to do. No matter how much I might want to perform or be in a show, it's not really up to me at the end of the day. I can campaign, I can put myself forward, I can audition, I can go back, call back, but ultimately it's not in my control. So I wanted something that was creative that I controlled from the beginning, middle, and an end. And writing for me is about being able to be in control of my own creativity and having an artistic musical outlet that I can express what I'm feeling without being a messenger of someone else's message, you know? Hello, creators. Thanks for tuning into this podcast from the creative process. I'm Xander Guidry, an undergraduate linguistics concentrator at Princeton University, as well as creative writing podcaster and LGBTQ plus voices editor here at the creative process. I'd like to circle back very quickly to the importance of, to use Gavin's term, invisible artists. I do agree wholeheartedly with the sentiment that invisible artists are present in our everyday lives and the creative footprints that they leave in life's microscopic, mundane moments are, to quote Gavin again, all moments to lead us to a dream and are ultimately all in a creative pursuit. For those of us who identify as creatives, Oftentimes, at least for me, I find myself centering everything that I do and even the way that I define my existence around my creative energy and creative output. But I've realized that I tend to lose my creative momentum much more often than I find it. And that's when things get tricky for me. I think that society has created this idea that creatives are nonstop. We always have an idea to pursue, we're always inspired, we're always creating. I haven't picked up a pencil in months. Sometimes the most, quote, creative thing I have the energy to do is watch a movie that I've already seen three times. And that's okay. This idea of omnipresent or continuous creativity is frigid to the point of being entirely antithetical to the creative process, the process it claims to depict. And frankly, it's a highly privileged idea that's inherently exclusive of folks who don't have the means, whether that be mental, physical, financial, otherwise, to support that kind of mindset. Every single one of us has a different definition of what it means to be creative and has a different process to accompany that definition. As Gavin said earlier, we are all creative, beautiful, interesting, deep, rich individuals. We are imperfect blobs of emotion and bone and spirit and life. No matter what our individual creative processes look like, Knowing this is what makes a person creative. We were teaching people what we were learning about the fight for marriage equality as we were going, and I really enjoyed that. So 
connecting with people in our community and trying to inspire them to join us in effective change that could, could lead to us getting our rights. And it was neat to be able to like make a single like noise. That was a message about we can't be quiet. If we want justice, sometimes it, it involves us getting loud. That's what the song was about. It was the perfect time because it was part of hair. And I'm really proud that creating music can be topical and effective. And that was probably the greatest example of it. Now, the next thing I'm working on, I got a commission from the Metropolitan Museum of Art in oh. New York. And I'm going to do a part of their MetLife Arts series. I was going to do it on June 22nd. We've had to postpone it, obviously, until we're back in business. And an evening of original music that I've written music and lyrics to, sort of a self-exploration through art and the museum of what it means to appreciate art, to look at fine art, and to see if you can find yourself within it, and then see what you find tells you about yourself. And I'm really excited about what I'm writing, and I'm sad that we're not doing the concert in June, but I'm up here in the cabin, and I'm got my piano and I'm slowly getting I haven't felt very productive for a while but I'm slowly starting to get a little more of that itch going and I'm just taking my time and I've got my bullet board and my keyboard and my bongos and my microphone and <laughs> my piano downstairs and I'm, I'm just excited to take some of the control that we don't have any control over anything obviously with yeah. this, you know what I mean? I know. So I do think my illusion of control lies here. What I have control over is how I react to the world, to my co-stars, to my creative team to my friends, to my new friends. <laughs> what I do is what I essentially probably have control over. And what happens to me and how I react to it is what differentiates me from everyone else. And hopefully, ultimately, joins me together. Because I'm going, you miss theater too? So do I. Do you want to make a difference? So do I. Do you want to collaborate? Yes. Boom. Next thing you know, we've made something in the world. Like this interview. Like this and I think, you know, control is an illusion, as you say, but we can yeah. control our reactions and we can find something positive. In it. And I, I'm wondering what kind of, what kind of musicals will come out either, you know, but I'm sure, I'm sure you're already percolating away there and, and some exciting things are happening and that we can, we can share those soon. So you let, let us know what happens. We've been talking so much about education. I think that's really great and inspiring for students. I want to ask just a question about the future. I think that we covered a lot of it, but you know, as you think about education and technology and the environment the future and it's particularly in our minds now the kind of world we're leaving the next generation you know what are some things that you like to focus on you know to you know to have a better future going forward imagination i was meditating on it today inspiration and then i found myself coming back to trust I think it comes back to that control, the helplessness that I feel at the moment. I am finding that it is all about me leaning back and trusting that I'm still okay, I'm still safe, we are still okay, we are still safe, even amidst this upending that's happening to all of our lives in a way that we don't even recognize who we are or what we are. Clearly, it's what we need, and I think going, I pray that opportunity and and imagination and inspiration will present themselves in a way that I don't have to try or muscle them or grab them or create them. Now that said, I'm still going to try to create my own opportunity. Create the opportunity for yourself, find the inspiration, and be as imaginative as possible. But I also know that I need to lean back and not pressure myself or guilt myself or shame myself. You should be doing more. That's antithetical to creative process. That's just pressure and fear. So I would say to be creative is to try and nurture my own permission to do what it is that I want to do. Yeah, it's beautiful how you bring an idea or you start with your imagination and that can be carried on even beyond barriers that you think you couldn't cross. So there's no limitations, right, except the ones of our own imagination. I want to speak about, I mean, you mentioned some icons like, you know, Bette Midler. You had a chance to work with um, Julie Andrews, right? I mean, just speak yeah. about some of those. I'm not just like they're icons, but I imagine these are some kind of people that were like maybe helped form your initial love of musical theater. I mean, Sound of Music and Beaches mm -hmm. are maybe two of the biggest movies of my growing up. Yeah. Truly. Yes. It's bizarre that I worked with both of them. Sound of Music, without a doubt, we watch it every Christmas. And my it's my mother's favorite movie. And just understanding the brilliance of the writing and her performance and the humanity in it and also the, the topical nature of what it was about. Musical was struggling with Nazi Germany and that was a huge influence. And then Beaches, as a young person, I watched that movie again and again. I, the soundtrack 
knowing that I worked with Mark Shaman, who was the executive producer on that record, you know, and I know him and Hairspray and done tons of workshops and readings and stuff with him and, and now Scott Whitman also, but Mark produced also Harry Connick Jr.'s We Are In Love album that got some of the greatest music on it that I listened to growing up. You know, just getting to see all of them as working artists. I didn't watch Bet as like this movie star who came in and walked on stage and I was enamored of her. I watched her read her scripts before every single show. I watched Julie Andrews practicing her lines in between each take trying to get them better. I watched Mark Shaman doubt what he was writing even as I was singing it thinking he was genius and him listening to my suggestions and then taking them or, you know, just hearing me. Like, there was always a curiosity even in those people who literally didn't need to be curious anymore. That Midler and Julie Andrews, they could just say, I'm done. I'm doing it this way. That They were the opposite of that, both of them. They were still working after both of them being crowned like queen and diva of the world. Yes. <laughs> like, you know, there's no reason for them to continue to work except for that's the only reason. Otherwise, it's so boring. You're constantly trying to mine creativity and to mine a deeper appreciation for communication and connection in every moment, even if you're repeating it. She did the show for over a year. She did it the whole year, and then she came back and did it for six more weeks. But she could have just been done, you know, yeah. and she never was. And, and, and Julie Andrews was constantly working on trying to make her rendition of Nanny better. And I, I was so inspired by that. And it made me go, you don't get to relax. You don't get to be lazy. But these women are, are doing that kind of work in their career, where they are in their career. There's no, there's no time or place for you to be slowing down or being lazy. Yeah. I want to speak about the Book of Mormon, and I'm just seeing this kind of zigzag adventure of these yeah, roles that could not be more different. No, no, it's so much fun. The, the role of Elder Price is the hardest thing I've ever done. Vocally, it was the hardest thing. Physically, it was, it was exhausting. It was the hardest thing and the one thing I did the longest, because I think it's one of the greatest, most well-written modern musicals of all time. I think it, it, it winks and honors so many different styles of musical theater, different shows, within the show itself. Okay. It's staged and built in such an economic, smart way. It's melodic. Bobby and Trey wrote stunning, beautiful, simple, but melodic and unique melodies. And the lyrics and the story are brilliantly irreverent, also extremely poignant. Like the, the idea that a musical that shreds apart organized religion only to come to the thesis at the end that you have to believe like believing is yeah. believing in something is imperative something bigger than yourself is so it almost is an argument for religion even as it people who don't really understand it and run from it think it's it's critical and evil towards religion it's actually quite beautifully reverent in a way and i just i just think the only reason i could do it as long as i did besides the fact that it was the best job i'd ever had up to that point was that playing that part was so unbelievably satisfying to do. I can see how it's, it's a role that you could play for a long time. And that when I first heard about that, I was like, oh, really? <laughs> and to, to turn a success from something that, like, let's admit that many people, like, cross the road to avoid, you know, to be proselytized. So I thought that, that, oh, yeah. that that's brilliant in itself. To turn oh, that into a runaway hit is great. I know, I know, I know. And also to turn it into something that is not only about religion, yeah. but it's also taking religion to task. You just think, how are they going to do this? And it's South Park that's writing it. Yeah. But they also have, you know, Casey Nicola and, and, and Bobby Lopez and Scott Rudin and Ann Garofino, the producers. And it was a perfect storm of, of people creating something that ultimately is one of the greatest things ever written in our musical theater canon. I stand by that 100,000%. And it does bring to an interesting point that, you know, humor, when there's a sincerity underneath that, you know, and that has this underlying compassion, it's just so much deeper. It's interesting, you know? Yes. And you can yeah, laugh yeah. And, and also have uh, compassion for them. So, yeah, I have a, yeah. you know, I don't know where you are on the, the religious or spiritual spectrum, but I think that we have to always try to respect. It comes back to this thing about listening to who's on the other side and how they're receiving you. But we have to at least make the effort of listening. 
it comes into politics here in our country is so yes. divided and polarized. And, and, and as much as I want to throttle the people that don't agree with me, it makes me know better than, the, than that they don't listen to me and they really make fun of me or call me names or, or say I'm some liberal gay commie Jew tree hugger who's out of touch with what Americans want. And I'm like, okay, I hear, I hear your frustration, but we both have to agree to put our swords down and sit down and talk at a calm level because we're never going to get anywhere. And I, I'm with you. Spiritually, I'm, I'm extremely spiritual, and I'm praying more than ever nowadays, trying to understand what's going on with the world and how to exist, and, and I'm, frankly, how to have faith that theater will survive. Yeah. You know, it's going to be a long time. It just is because there's no way you can get in large groups of people without fear or threat of illness. And and I believe that the I believe that the desire for us to tell stories is timeless and eternal. The desire to come together in community is what religion is all about. Oh, yes. Relegate Latin for to commune. Uh-huh. It is essential for the human spirit to come together in, in theater, in, in demonstration. So we will figure this out and we will move past it. And I think that theater will become more important than ever because we're going to be so sick of watching television and movies and talking to each other on screens. We're going to want to see each other next to one another. We're going to watch something play out in front of us. I just think we have to have faith that it's going to it's gonna come, but it's going to take a long time. I'd like to go into that a bit more because I think it's true. I think one thing, I mean, it's like scarcity or whatever. So we value it more. We may have a little bit less of it for the near future for a while, but then the members of the audience will be that much more engaged. Perhaps even they'll be creatively engaged uh, beyond being audience members, but they'll be called upon to like help you know, raise awareness and reach out. And if you, even if you have to have like digital compromises, but that sense of a, a feedback of a, of an attentive audience may be greater because then when we can, we'll really appreciate it. Right. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. I just want to thank you, Gavin James Creel for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you very, very much. I'm honored to be a part. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Xander Gidry, and Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, or podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Yeah.